right, everybody. Welcome to Farmer's Jam Radio. Super excited to be here for our first show. I am James Carr. I'll be your host on Farmer's Jam Radio. For anyone who's unfamiliar, Farmer's Jam is a collective of farmers and friends. And we play music, we make jam, we take the proceeds from our shows and from our jam sales, and we give away fruit trees to local farmers. Uh, This year, we uh, are on pace to give away over 200 fruit trees to local farms. So we're real excited about our contribution to the uh, local food scene here in Atlanta. Farmer's Jam Radio is an initiative to share more about what we love and care about, which is local food, regenerative agriculture, and community building. So we have a few different shows planned, uh, but this one is more of an interview-based show. So our first guest is Laura Riley of The Washington Post. She is an award-winning journalist. I've been following her work since 2017. She really does an outstanding job. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you will too. Uh, For now, here's Laura Riley, and I'll catch you on the other side. Hey, Laura, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I'm very excited to be chatting with you today um, because you your work actually back in in 2017 i think it was 2017 uh inspired something that's a lifetime ago <laughs> in georgia yes i know so just a quick story um georgia organics um just hosted something called the farmer champion week and it was a week of highlighting uh restaurateurs who are are really buying local and organic to a high degree so had to go through all kinds of processes and analysis and see where the food's coming from and how it's being grown and all this kind of stuff. And those restaurants were just highlighted uh, this uh, in December uh, for all the um, sourcing and, and work and commitment that they've put in. And this all started to become a thing because of the series you wrote uh, at the Tampa Bay Times called Farm to Fable, where you essentially did a little, little myth-busting uh, when it came to some restaurant claims. So I was wondering if you could, for anyone who didn't uh, catch that series at the time, uh, give us just a little high-level um, sort of review of what you were discovering over and over again in some of the restaurants in the Tampa area. Sure. I'll back up a little bit from the series. So I was a food okay. critic for years and years, and maybe, I'm going to say maybe 2015, um, I reviewed very famous steakhouse in Tampa called Burn Steakhouse. And, you know, they famously have, you know, dry age their own meat and have their own organic garden and, you know, from which they source. And I went there at some point to review in maybe June or July in Tampa. And um, the waiter went through his spiel about the organic garden. And I said, you know, as the meal, as the meal progressed, I kind of said, well, what on my plate would come from the garden? And he was like, oh, these mushrooms and these carrots and this and that and the other thing. And I thought, nothing grows in Tampa. You can't grow carrots in Tampa in July. I mean, it's just not a, it's not a thing. Mm. So it got me thinking, well, if they're misrepresenting, you know, how, like on, on what kind of scale, you know? Um, so I did just a, about the lowest tech investigation you can. I went to the address that the farm was. And I kind of peeked over the fence and, you know, this is pre-drone, so we didn't have a way of kind of sending something over. (laughs) 
you know, I ended up getting a photographer to go back with me with a big ladder so that we could look over the fence. Um, and there was nothing there, you know, absolutely mm. nothing there, completely fallow land. So I went to the owner of, of Burns and said, what's going on? Oh, well, we're in the, in the process of moving our farm to a different location. And, and I thought, well, why is the wait, why are the waiters still telling that the produce comes from their garden? And then at some point on the menu, it also said, Whenever possible, we source our produce, you know, organic, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I kind of had to say, well, then, so if nothing's coming from your own garden, uh, how much is, how much are you sourcing organically? Well, you may be like 10%. And I thought, well, this is a, a gross misrepresentation. And it just got me thinking, how frequently is this going on? And this is right during the run up of, farm-to-table restaurants, you know, the kind of the hipster chalkboards with the lists of the farms. So I went to my bosses and I said, I want to do like a legit investigation on this stuff. And, you know, food writers don't have that latitude very often, but the Tampa Bay Times believes in that kind of, you know, project type, um, you know, work. And so they said, well, bring us, bring us something to hang this on and we'll let you do it. So I went to one, one of my favorite restaurants and, um, basically took a picture of their chalkboard and went back to my office and started calling. And the first guy I called was this guy, a commercial fisherman uh, named Kirk Morgan. And I, you know, honestly, I didn't know whether to call him Captain Kirk or Captain Morgan, because either way, (laughs) it's super goofy. But I called him and I said, hey, I just want to talk to you about the fish you're selling to Boca Restaurant. And he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't sell any fish to Boca Restaurant. I said, oh, well, if you wholesale, maybe you're selling to a vendor who then in turn sell to them, sell to them. And, and he said, well, yeah, that's possible. You know, well, what are they buying or what do they have? Like, oh, grouper and snapper. And he's like, well, that's impossible because I, I fish for mullet and sheep's head. You know, mm. so it was just – and this was just the tip of the iceberg. I, you know, so I did – Many weeks of basically tracking back everybody's menus, you know, okay, that you say you get, you know, uh, Florida Gulf shrimp, you know, okay, let's talk to the vendor, let's talk to their vendor. And there was unbelievable fraud. And so this was, that was one piece of what I did. And then I went to every farmer's market in the Tampa Bay area over a bunch of weeks and wrote down every vendor and then tried to, to legitimize you know, all of these vendors. And sometimes it was goofy. I mean, I went on a weekend with a photographer to like knock on doors at these farmers' houses. Um, and, you know, some half of them were like, come on in, let me show you my chickens. Let, you know, here, you, you want to hold this one? You know, some of them were completely legitimate. And some of them were like, oh, well, we, you know, we don't, uh, we don't show our farm to anyone, you know, and, and, and we found places where clearly they were buying, uh, you know, Publix rejects from from the wholesale markets, things that got passed over and Reebok reselling it as, as uh, you know, their own produce. So the resultant stories, it was a series of, I think, five or six stories over some months, um, you know, made me extremely unpopular among, you know, restaurateurs and, <laughs> yeah. and some some farm, you know, the, the all the farmers market organizers in the Tampa Bay area. But I think it was it answered a question that a lot of consumers had begun to ask is, are all these claims honest? Um, and I think that the answer in this area, you know, in the Tampa Bay area for sure was at the time, no. Mm. 
And yeah, it was a it was a really great, well done series. I think you you mentioned the hipster chalkboards, and that'll definitely seem familiar to people here in Atlanta, uh, in Georgia as well. Um, so yeah, well, really great work. If you want to um, do a quick Google search for anyone listening, if you uh, search "Farm to Fable Tampa Bay," you can pretty much pull up the whole series and and dive all the way in if you'd like to. But that was a really great um, explanation. So thank you for taking the time to um, share that with us, Laura. Um, and I think, honestly, your explanation of that really puts into context what is going down in Burke County Schools. So I've had the um, pleasure of going down to Burke County a couple of times in, in my work because their farm to school program is probably the, I mean, it's, it's up there with the best of anyone here in Georgia in terms of their sourcing and their commitment to scratch cooking um, Michelle Obama actually came to visit Burke County uh, schools in 2016. That's kind of how they got on my radar. So they've been doing a really amazing job at trying to provide the healthiest, localist, localist, <laughs> uh, most local food uh, that they can for their students. And, it, you know, I think it's just a, an, a really powerful contrast to think about these restaurants who are selling, you know, top dollar food compared to the type of budget that's going on. Uh, in a school system uh, like Burke County, especially like in Burke County, which is in one of the most low-income areas in Georgia. Um, your story focused on the sort of county-level challenges dealing with supply chain, which is quickly becoming the, the word of the year um, or term of the year. If you, for anyone who missed uh, missed out on the article, what what was your what were your findings from Burke County and uh, and and the kind of challenges that they're facing there? Well, I did an initial story on how school nutrition, uh, you know, programs around the country were suffering from the same uh, supply chain issues that restaurants and, you know, other kinds of food service establishments are, um, but they have fewer resources. They can't, you know, a restaurant, if they have labor woes or, the you know, the trucks show up half full, they can change the menu, they can dumb it down, they can close for lunch, they can, you know, they're all, like, limit their hours, do takeout mm -hmm. only. They have all kinds of tools. It's not that it's easy, you know, because restaurants are completely dying on the vine right now. But, um, you know, schools are mandated by law to serve precise meals at precise times. Um, you know, a lot of these kids, especially in low-income areas, this is the, where they get the lion's share of their nutrition for the week. Um, so you cannot just close up shop or you can't run out, you know. Right. So a lot of these programs around the country have really – and, then, you know, unfortunately, uh, school districts tend to be the least lucrative um, contracts for some of these big vendors, whether you're talking about, mm. you know, Cisco or U.S. Foods. So if they're crunched, and they're crunched too, I mean, they're having supply chain issues and labor shortages and trucker shortages, et cetera. So if they're going to jettison their least, their, you know, 30% of their least lucrative contract, often that's going to be schools. And so a lot of these, these school districts have had their major distributors cancel on them last minute, you know, you know, Tyson Foods saying, oh, sorry, I know we, we negotiated last year for chicken at this level on these dates at this price. That's null and void. You know, it's kind of a force majeure. We're, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, so all all bets are off. All, all contracts avoided. Um, so, in doing that initial story, I talked to Donna Martin in Burke County, um, and I was really struck by 
her kind of steely resolve to not um, go the easy route, not that there's an easy route, but the, the easier route. Um, mm-hmm. She decided she is not just going to outsource everything to Sodexo or one of the big companies that are coming in and doing a lot of the food service, and she's not going to just resort to all prefab, you know, hyper-processed foods, because I think she, as you said before, I mean, she is keenly aware that so many kids in her district um, maybe don't have great nutrition uh, opportunities at home, and so this is vitally important to them. And she's always had this this tradition of buying as much as she can from local farmers. So it's, you know, it's kind of a win-win-win. You know, the kids get more wholesome, better-for-them food, the local farmers have a, a, a reliable outlet for some of their stuff, um, and it showcases local. It teaches kids, uh, you know, a much better, you know, if you can get kids early, as early as kindergarten, to embrace, you know, crowder peas and and stewed greens and things that are that are fresh, as opposed to, I mean, a lot of these kids they were telling me arrive. You know, ready for kindergarten, and they haven't ever held a fork. They don't. You know, all of the foods they eat at home are pizza, nuggets, handheld, you know, sandwiches, things that you don't that don't require utensils. You know, so it's a very uphill battle to get kids to embrace things like that. But often um, there's social pressure. So if the kids around you are eating this thing on the plate, well, I guess I'll try it. I'll give it a whirl. You know, so it's. It's about acculturating people into eating foods that are good for them and, you know, not having it all be, you know, like the, you know, nugget arama. Um, so, yeah, so Donna is, is a dynamo and, and pre-pandemic was a dynamo and has persisted with incredible headwinds uh, in the past 18 months to get that food into the hands of those kids. Um, so I went down there and I ate a bunch of meals and they were pretty darn good, I have to say. Yeah. They did not in any way resemble the, the chicken frisbees and sloppy joes of my youth. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's, she's remarkable. She really is. And just to, to kind of highlight, and I think you mentioned this in the article, but last year or in 2020 when the schools were closed, I mean, they were literally filling up school buses with meals. And, and sending them out into the county so that there would just be enough food going around. Um, so, you know, Donna's commitment is, is so deep to, to the, the community that she serves and, um, you know, really has been, frankly, a public servant. Um, I wrote, you know, in, in, in when I put, uh, shared your article in our newsletter that this story was both inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. I'm kind of wondering, you know, what was your takeaway from this? And, um, you know, do you see and, – and just looking at some of the other articles you've written recently, you've written a lot about supply chain issues, um, you know, as a lot of people have. But is this an issue that is going to persist? Like, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, how, how did you come away with, with your story from, uh, you know, writing about Burke? Well, this is one rare case where I am wildly optimistic so just uh, maybe the day before, let's see, what day was it? Friday, I think, I wrote a story. Uh, Secretary of Ag Vilsack um, made a huge announcement that they are putting $1.5 billion worth of food into the school nutrition program starting ASAP. I mean, like the schools are going to start oh, getting wow. this money January, like beginning of January. So this is a case, and, and I think – We've seen this from the Biden administration a whole bunch of times since since he took office. 
um, school meals have gotten a lot of attention. Uh, kind of the whole social safety net, you know, whether that's SNAP, what we used to call food stamps, or WIC, the, the program for women and, and infants and toddlers, all of these programs, because of the pandemic, have gotten a significant boost. And, you know, I mean, for instance, with, with school meals, pretty much all school districts have been uh, allowed to give universal free meals, um, so it, which, which gets rid of the stigma associated with, you know, being a poor kid and not getting a free meal. And, you know, it just levels the playing field in a lot of ways and makes it much easier administratively for a school to just give food to everybody who shows up who wants it. Um, and so I think that those kinds of, of advances – the longer they go on, you know, if it's another year of Omicron rides, you know, roughshod over us in the next few months, and we have a whole another school year, essentially, with universal free meals and enormously increased, uh, you know, commodity food support from the government, it's going to be so much harder to walk that stuff back. You know, like, where's the political will to say, yeah, that's enough of that nice stuff. So it, I yeah. am actually optimistic that, if we do this long enough and if good data, you know, is is accumulated that shows that universal school meals and that, a, you know, a, a greater reliance on, you know, fresh vegetables and fruits and, you know, dairy and, and meat and whatever, um, it has a discernible impact on, you know, things like childhood obesity, which is, has skyrocketed during the pandemic. You know, if if we can actually track some of this stuff, I think that there is bipartisan support to make some of this stuff permanent, um, to, to have more exacting nutritional standards for those meals, to have more federal support uh, in a reliable and usable way for these schools. Um, and I, I think that it might be something great that comes with the pandemic. Wow. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. And I, I, I've, I've often thought, you know, in, in looking into farm to school more that it really is one area where you could get a lot of bipartisan support because you're talking about, uh, you know, helping local farmers. You're talking about nutrition for kids. It's really hard to be against either of those constituencies um, and stay in politics for very long. So, uh, I'm, 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 I'm glad that you are optimistic. Um, so just looking around, you know, sort of an outlook for 2022, I'm curious, um, you know, just in general, what kind of trends that, that you're seeing or anticipating? And if there's, you know, anything that you're sort of working on reporting that we might look out for in the next couple of months? Well, I think that the supply chain disruptions that have plagued us for the past bunch of months will continue, unfortunately. Um, some of them are large enough and intractable enough that they are not going to dissipate. You know, for instance, the can uh, shortage. You know, talking to Ball Corp, which is the biggest producer of cans in the U.S., they're basically spoken for for the next two years with cans. So there is going to be a shortfall for a very long time. Same with corrugated cardboard. You know, now that most of us are, are doing e-commerce, uh, so much more than 18 months ago, um, cardboard boxes are, are, are at a premium. So those kinds of things are going to persist. And then you have a lot of things that are really, uh, climate change related extreme weather events impacting crops. Um, you know, whether that's commodity row crops or, 
Um, you know, we have a cr- an incredible surge in the price of fertilizer, which will impact the growth of, of those row crops and then in turn the animals that are fed with those row crops. And then, you know, that those prices, we've seen beef skyrocket 25% since the beginning of the pandemic, or actually just year over year, just in the past year. Um, so some of those problems will persist, not even as the, the supply chain stuff with the pandemic kind of gets evened out. But some of those uh, extreme weather, you know, related problems, and we have this year a terrible barley uh, yield, you know, there are a whole bunch of crops that are way down. Um, I just talked to a guy who does um, one of the biggest producers of dried beans, and there were way fewer acres of dried beans grown or, you know, beans grown for dried or canned beans this year. Um, and the acres that were planted had much lower yields than usual because of either in the West Coast, you know, drought and extreme heat, and on the other side of the country, too much rain you know, at, at the wrong time. So we're having things that will, in fact, diminish crop production um, in some ways, even as population continues to grow, maybe not so much in the U.S., but worldwide population. So I think that there are going to be um, more gaps that we see, thing, you know, things that go missing. I mean, and sometimes it's it's odd things, you know, like right now, American bakers can't get wheat gluten because a lot of it comes from China and there was some kind of, you know, chemical found in it that has hitched a lot of it up in China. Um, so there are all kinds of like odd little, you know, snafus in terms of shipping and transportation, partly because so many products are global now, you know. I mean, you have a can of soup that has 30 ingredients and six of them come from Southeast Asia. If two of those are missing, what do you got? What do you do? You know, where, where do you turn? Um, so some of those issues are going to persist. And certainly as we have these extreme weather events, um, you know, impacting crop production, those are, those are questions that will, pers- that will go on um, long after the pandemic has resolved, I think. Yes, I definitely think that we'll have there'll be so many long lasting ramifications over what's happened in the last two years and I'm always kind of just wondering, is it is it a thing where we, you know, are holding down the Ford and with with withholding uh, you know, some some beatings here or there, or is it you know, is there any appetite for some kind of a reckoning to, to realign how things are done? I suppose, you know, time will tell on that one. Um well, I, don't you think that the that the past eighteen months has have made everybody more keenly aware about where our food is from? I mean, even just the idea oh, yeah. of supply chain. No one thought of. No one talked about supply chain issues. You know, two years ago, it was dead boring. And now, kind of the provenance of food and building in redundancies into the system and and actively cultivating local and regional food systems, all of those things that I, are are being spoken about by average people, who people are not in the business of this. Um, and I think only good can come of that, you know, if we are, are all much more keenly aware of the fragility of the system we have and the need for an overhaul. I think that, that there is a lot more um, kind of momentum. Uh, than there was two years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree. And, and even you know, you brought up ball jars. We we used to use make our jam from ball. Couldn't do that this year. <laughs> we had to to 
to find uh, jars elsewhere. And, you know, at the same time, it's, it's, was, would have been a bit of a crunch on us, but like for Farmer's Jam, as our goal generally being about, you know, local food systems, it's kind of like, well, yeah, this means more people are canning at home. Like that's a good thing. People are understanding the value of canning and preserving what they already have. Uh, we definitely think it's a good thing. And I think there is, there is more talk about, you know, sort of regional, resiliency resilience seems to be a big word that's been coming up the last couple of years as well um that yeah i think that the long-term outlook uh could be very strong i just you know i suppose maybe we are in that time now where there's just a lot of bumps in the road but i think it's going to take a long time for us to uh to get there one of the things that i had had a chat about with somebody at the epa recently was you know we look at these kitchens uh, school kitchens that are a lot of times closed during the summer. These are, you know, commercial grade kitchens with a lot of storage. Can those become a part of our local food systems during the summer, during the peak of growing season when a not, not a lot of them are being used? So I, I think that you're right. There's a lot more conversations out there that are being had that weren't even on the table before. Uh, so it'll be kind of, it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Absolutely. I, unfortunately, I think there's such a, a bifurcation of our, culture in that, you know, a big chunk of us have taken this time to maybe become better cooks, to, to focus in more, maybe have a victory garden in the backyard, maybe, you know, make your own bread, you know, do things that are, are therapeutic and kind of self-care um, and that give us all a little bit more independence from the kind of, you know, massive multinational consumer packaged goods companies that, you know, make all our food. And then another big chunk of us have spent the past 18 months, you know, eating our feelings and, and like buying, you know, red vines and, and, you know, Twinkies. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's a, a, a very large and wide disconnect, you know, and I think a lot of people who are, um, you know, really reliant on hyper-processed food have had so many health consequences, you know, including COVID, bad outcomes from COVID, um, that, you know, there needs to be more kind of regulatory and legislative work uh, aimed at uh, penalizing companies for, for predatory marketing, for, you know, basically the kind of Frito-Lay type companies that basically don't make any redeemable food. It's all garbage, um, you know, and, and it's a, uh, um, remains to be seen whether there is the the kind of the will to do that kind of work. It does, it does, and I, you know, just on that term, there was a, and I don't know if you had done any reporting on this, but there was a big antitrust price fixing case that was announced earlier this year. It seemed like it was going to be a an, a big step in the right direction, and this was more towards meatpacking companies. That lawsuit just uh, did not. There was no no verdict. It, it ended in a mistrial. The the jury was was hung in the end. So it's one of those things where I do see uh, the present administration talking a lot about things that I've really wanted uh, government to be talking about for ten plus years. Um, and there's more and more people who are stepping up to talk about agriculture and including it as a big part of their campaigns. But you see what ends up happening in practice. You know, it doesn't always seem to work out. So I, I again, I was really uh, enthused by your optimism. It actually does make me feel really good. But I, I, having to be, always having to temper myself sometimes because 
you know, you see a lot of these uh, good intentions out there uh, that, that just they don't always get over the line. Like you mentioned, do they have the actual will to to get over the line? I'm, you know, that remains to be seen. Well, in some ways, there are other parts of the world that are doing better and we need to emulate them. I mean, a lot of South American countries now are doing front of label uh, kind of warning signs. Uh, if, a, if a food product is over a certain threshold in terms of added sugars or salt or saturated fat or whatever, it gets a warning sign and then it can't be sold in a school and, you know, mm. there, are, and there are other places, you know, so those kinds of things, whether it's, you know, or, or sugar taxes in Mexico, you know, yeah. there, there are ways of um, ch- changing habits and culture by, making demands of the companies that make our food basically um and it it's it works and so i think that there's you know if we could follow suit in some ways uh we would we would be better off for sure yep no i I definitely agree with you on that uh well laura i really appreciate your time and and for sharing um your stories with us and also your your great writing on a subject that is near and dear to us so uh, thanks for your time and, and thanks for for the work you do and Um, hopefully sometime uh, we'll be able to have you back and and chat more about some of these issues that sounds great thanks for having me today all right bye-bye all right bye all right everybody thank you once again for tuning in to the very first show on farmers jam radio farmers jam radio was created by longleaf media produced by myself and cam christian with music by nomad i want to give another thank you to our first guest laura riley from the washington post check out all of her work at the washington post you can also follow her on twitter at l riley if you enjoyed this show you could do us a huge huge favor by rating us five stars leaving us a nice little review for a new podcast that could make a huge difference If you'd like to learn more about Farmer's Jam, head over to our website, www.thefarmersjam.com. There you can sign up for our newsletter, which is where you can get plugged in with everything we're doing. But on our website, you can learn a bit more about our events, you can learn more about our fruit tree giveaways, and you can learn more about our delicious, one-of-a-kind Farmer's Jam. You will never have a better jam in your life, trust me. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time on Farmer's Jam Radio. Y'all stay safe out there and jam on.